So today we are doing that God is just. We're going to talk about the justice of God. Romans 9.14, Paul asks, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And some translations translate this different. Some say, may it never be. Uh, this is uh, in Greek. Uh, I've, I've always, I don't know Greek, but I've always heard and read that this is the strongest emphatic in the Greek. Uh, and it shows up in Paul in more than one place. And basically, this is the strongest possible way in Greek you can say absolutely not. In English, we don't really have an equivalent. We don't have like the strongest emphatic. We have a lot of phrases that basically mean the same thing. But in Greek, they had it. So it's hard to translate into English. But this is basically just Paul's way of saying absolutely, positively not. Not in a million, billion years. And so we have here Paul making sure emphatically that there is no injustice with God. God is perfectly just. And so let's define justice. Before we do that, I'd just like to see what are some of the things that come to your mind when you hear the concept justice. What is justice? It's a determination between good and evil. A determination between, yeah, that's good, yeah. Determination between good and evil. Uh, like a lot of words... In the Bible, the word justice can be used in different ways. Um, in some places, it's synonymous with righteousness. To be just is to be righteous, right? So it it's, has a link to righteousness and holiness. As a matter of fact, in Latin, the word for just and righteous is the exact same word. And a lot of theologians argue that that's really what caused the big debate between Roman Catholics and Protestants over justification, is that Roman Catholics, when they see the word justification, they think of righteous. They think of holiness. And so when a Roman Catholic reads the Bible and the Bible says God justifies the, the wicked, they see God makes them a holy person. But Protestants see the other understanding of the word justice, not righteousness, but justice. And so they see that God declares someone righteous rather than actually makes them righteous. And a lot of people have argued this debate goes all the way back to Jerome and Augustine and one used the Latin, one understood the Latin better. So in Latin, justice and righteousness are the same word. In the Greek, they had multiple words. So it can be used broadly and comprehensively, but the kind of justice we're talking about today is, can be defined actually pretty simply. And it's just simply giving what is due. Justice is when a person receives what they deserve, whether good or bad, right? You can, you can be deserving of something both good or bad. So anytime you get what you deserve, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, you've received justice. It is giving what is due. And so typically, that's why we talk about, we can talk about, we, the kind of justice we're talking about today, when we talk about God's attribute, is often referred to as distributive justice or retributive justice. The idea of dis distributing what is owed, just, or retribution, giving back what is deserved. Distributive or retributive. So these, are these, these mean the same thing. They mean the exact same thing. And this is primarily what we're looking at. And even within retributive justice or distributive justice, you can break it down even further into two categories. This is a word I always really struggle to say. Rem, rem, remunerative. How do you say that? I can never even pronounce it the right way. But it's, it's like re, 
yeah, there you go. I can't say it. My lips can't pronounce it. Um, remuneration is what it's based off of. I can at least say that word, which is simply giving rewards, right? So if you've earned something good and then someone gives you that good thing, that's justice. You've received what you are due. And that is that kind of justice. But then there's punitive justice, which is the negative side of it, which is rendering punishments, right? So retributive justice can be both positive or negative. Distributive justice can be positive or negative, receiving rewards or receiving punishments. And so when we say that God is just, what we're saying is that he gives rewards when they're due perfectly without fail, and he renders punishments when they're due perfectly without fail. There's no injustice with God, meaning he never fails to give what is due. Uh, Just one quick biblical example of rendering punishments, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, right? So this is a good example of punitive justice. It's a repayment, and it is just uh, when someone does something wrong, when they afflict us, then they deserve affliction, an eye for an eye. So people afflict the church, God will afflict them. We see there an example of just retributive payment, justice. Uh, It's important to distinguish, this is really helpful, between punishment and discipline. So justice is, the negative side of justice is the giving of punishments. And uh, it's really important to understand the difference between punishment and discipline. Now, this is broadly speaking. There there are times in, throughout the Bible, we're going to look at one at the end of the day, where sometimes discipline or chastisement is used in the same way as punishment. So we can't be too exact all the time. But on a general level, the Bible and human language in general distinguishes between punishment and discipline. And just off, just off the top of the head, has anybody ever thought about, you have any ideas what might the difference between punishment and discipline is? We, we tend to use these the same way. Like when we spank our kids, we might call that a punishment. But I'm going to argue in a second that that's not, technically speaking, that's actually not punishment. Spankings are not punishments. They're chastisement. They're discipline. Discipline has to do with your future. Ah, that's, yep, that's exactly right. Yeah, bingo, that's it. So, um, justice distributes punishment, and punishment is not reformational. Meaning, the end goal of punishment is not to make the person better. We have no interest, when we punish someone, we have no interest that it's making them a better person. We're just simply giving them what is due no matter what becomes of them. By the way, these, these, these big issues of what is justice are incredibly relevant to our society today and always have been since the founding of America as we try to determine a just society. And so this is why you have like prisons. What are, the old word for prison used to be reformatory. Because the idea was that they're not here to be punished, they're here to be reformed. Or you have, uh, they have other, other terms for it, juvenile, they have a juvenile um, correctional, Do you, have, you have these other words, because there was this idea, and there still is this idea in certain segments of the country, that punishment should, act, should always be towards reformation. While there's other people who tend to think, well, no, punishment is just, you stole this, this deserves to happen to you, I don't care if it makes you a better person or not, you deserve this. Uh, And so this is a little bit, uh, typically, 
the, more, the liberal mind tends to be on the reformational side, while the conservative mind tends to be on the punishment side. Is the punishment the same as paying the price or something? Essentially, yes. Right, yes. Now, discipline can be paying the price, but the goal of paying that price is, the only reason I'm making this person pay the price is because I think it will be better for them. If you're making them pay the price just to make it right, without any care of what's going to happen to them, then you're not in the discipline game, you're in the punishment game. Right, exactly. Yeah, it has, it has to do with purpose. When we punish people, we have no care over whether it's going to reform them or not. Punishment merely seeks retribution, not rehabilitation. That's, that's what punishment is doing. On the other end, discipline is actually not an act of justice, but is technically an act of goodness. And it seeks transformation. It's, discipline is not necessarily trying to correct a wrong as much as it's trying to improve the wrongdoer. I like the way Charles Hodge phrases it. Evil inflicted for the benefit of the sufferer is chastisement and not punishment. Punishment, properly speaking, is evil inflicted in satisfaction of justice. Right? So that's the difference. And we have some examples of that. Whoops, these wrong order. So sorry, just try to focus on these. This helps us uh, understand. Uh, I hear this, by the way. I've, I've heard many times in my pastoral career people ask me this very question, where it's like, on the one hand, we teach people that in Christ you're forgiven of all your sins. God does not hold your sins against you. But then we see all throughout the Bible that God disciplines Christians for their sins. So it seems, it seems like he does hold my sins against me. He doesn't forget them, right? How do we make sense of this? And that's because we have lost this distinguishment, this distinguishment between punishment and discipline. You will never be punished for your sins in Christ, but you will be disciplined for them. And so we see this uh, in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is essentially, this word condemnation is essentially saying punishment. God is never going to inflict judgment upon you for your sins. He's never going to bring down the wrath that your sins deserve. So there's no such thing as punishment for Christians. But we have this lengthy, famous passage from Hebrews 12. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us, here's the key, for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So you see uh, this clear emphasis on when you sin, God will spank you. He will discipline you. And that's not punishment. That's not retribution. It's to help you not sin in the future. It's to yield righteousness. It's to make you share in His holiness. It's for your good. It's to train you. So you see, discipline has your good in mind. Condemnation does not have your good in mind. It's just punishment. It's just justice. So uh, that's a key difference. So today we are not talking about discipline because chastisement or discipline is actually a category of God's goodness. We're not talking about God's goodness today. 
Rather, we're talking about justice, and so we're talking about punishment and reward. Now, since we've kind of dove into punishment, let's briefly dive into the word reward, because this can be troubling too, because don't we always talk about in evangelical life that salvation is not rewards, that God doesn't reward us, that everything is of grace, and, but yet the Bible talks a lot about rewards. It really does. There's a tons of passages on it, and so it's good for us to understand in what sense do we mean it when we say God gives us the justice of reward? Um, oh, oh yeah, so uh, ignore that title. Um, so the, the first thing we do want to make sure is that man is not owed anything. So there is a certain sense in which God does not owe you any rewards because you are not in and of yourself deserving of any rewards. Yet there is a different sense in which we can say God does owe you reward. And, and here's how we can do that. First and foremost, God owes us only what he promises us. So we are never owed anything in and of ourselves, right? God never just goes, well, you're just so great. I have to give you this. God never says, well, that work you did was just so great. I'm going to give it this. But rather, God in his love makes promises to us. And then once he's made that promise, he now being perfectly faithful and perfectly just has to fulfill that promise. So the only thing God ever owes to me is that which God graciously promised to me. But it's, again, it's not based on anything I've done or based on anything I am. It's based on a promise that I've received. Similarly, God owes us what he does in us. So in other words, God rewards our good works. But what are our good works? Our good works are actually God's good works. As Paul says, it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So God is really not rewarding you He's rewarding himself for what he's done through you. So we can speak of God owing me things. We can speak of God owing me reward, but we have to be very careful. I'm not owed it in anything of who I am or what I've done, but God owes what he's promised to me and God owes the reward of what he does in me. And so in other words, think of it this way. God is always a debtor to himself, but he's never a debtor to us. If God promises me something, then he now owes it to me, but not for my sake. It's so that he will prove faithful. It's, he, he owes it to himself to fulfill his promises, right? So he doesn't really owe, I'm not a debtor. He's a debtor to himself. Same thing with here. If he does a great work in me and then rewards it, he's a debtor to the work he did in me. He's a debtor to himself, right? So God owes us things based on his justice, but it's not essential to us. It's because of what God is doing in us. God owes himself something in and through us. Does that make sense? Well, let me just give a couple examples of these two things. This one maybe isn't as clear. I could have probably picked a better one, but I like this one. Romans 9, 11, speaking of the twins, Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So here's how we have Jacob was owed something by God. God made Jacob covenant promises. And so God owed Jacob the fulfillment of that covenant. But why did he owe this to Jacob? Is it because Jacob earned it? Because Jacob was so great? No, the text says it's because this is what God purposed and elected. If God didn't give what he promised to Jacob, then God is made a liar and he thwarts himself. So it's not because of Jacob that God owes something to Jacob. It's because of God that God owes something to Jacob. So in this, we get a small taste of how, yes, 
God's justice demanded he fulfill a covenant with Jacob, who, read Genesis, wasn't super likable. Like, Jacob didn't really deserve to be one of these amazing patriarchs. But God promised it to him. God elected him. And so God owed it to him. But on the basis of God's own election, not on the basis of Jacob. And we see similarly in Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is so amazing. So you do good things. You work and make good choices. You do good things and it brings God pleasure. So you do these good things and God is so pleased with your work that he rewards it. But notice what, it, what is the cause of these amazing things that brought God pleasure. God is the cause of those amazing things. So when God rewards your will and your work, he's actually rewarding himself. He's rewarding what he has done in you rather than just rewarding what you'd have done, right? So does, does that make sense about how we can speak of God owing us stuff, but that's, and it's it, in the, seen in the right context, we understand it's not because God actually does owe me anything in and of myself. Yes, because what the work he's doing in you is just guiding you along the path of sanctification. Exactly, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. There is no me in and of myself. I'm sorry. Yeah, just. If God is in me or not, please. Yeah, that, that I'm resting that because the book I'm reading feels. The, the in and of myself is. It's really God who works in me, in my, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Yeah. So therefore, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not on anything. He is. Right. Yeah. Exa- exactly. Yeah. That's right. <clears throat> and and that's the whole point. God, God rewards himself in us. <laughs> and, and, and the reason we bring all this up, I don't have the verses listed, but there, there are verses that's, that speak of, because of God's justice, there are verses that speak of God uh, rewarding us. I just, just one, for example, in Matthew, there's the famous chapter, a verse about prayer. Don't pray like the hypocrites do. But go and pray in private, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. So we, we could take that out of context if we wanted to, and we could say, look, God does owe man things. If I pray in private, God now owes me a reward. Right? I I have put God in my debt. I prayed in private, and he now owes me payment. And we can make God a debtor to us based on taking these verses of reward out of context. And so that's why we need to see things like this to take it out of context, where we see, yes, it is true that we do good works, and God rewards those good works, But the reason we can still never say that we merited something or that God is in our debt is because the good works God is rewarding are actually his works and not ours. It's what God did in us that he's rewarding. So that's the same argument that I can say, I have free will, I chose to believe in God. Right. and and, I chose not to because it's it's the same fallacy. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, we would say even because your faith to some degree is rewarded with eternal life. And that's why we would say even your faith is, exactly, your faith, the faith is something God worked in you. Yeah, that's right.
So this is why God's justice can reward us and owe us without us saying for one second of my life, I can still say God has never, ever, ever been in my debt. Even though I can say God owes me a reward. Right? That, those are the two pieces we're trying to bring together here. Uh, the last thing before we see some biblical examples, we, we talk about this with every attribute, and we'll really hit this hard when we get to simplicity, is that God is just essentially, which again just means justice is not this thing outside of God that he lives up to, but justice is actually a description of God's character and nature. So justice is who God is. It's not this thing that God brings about himself. God is just in and of himself. As, as we, on the other hand, I can exist without justice. As a matter of fact, given the doctrine of original sin and sin nature, for most of my life, I did exist without justice. And by the grace of God, he's made me more just and I've become a more just person. But I, I, justice is not so wrapped up in the being of Colin that if I were to die tomorrow, justice itself as a concept would die. But if God went away, there would be no such thing as justice anymore. Right? So you see the difference? Justice is who God is. As for us, justice is something outside of us that we live up to. So our justice, in other words, is measured by something outside of ourselves. If, if we were to look at any given situation and ask the question, is this just? We would have to go out of the situation and bring a standard into it. Well, how do we know what justice is? Well, we need a standard. But God, on the other hand, never brings this outside standard like a mirror and says, am I just? Well, let me see. What do the Ten Commandments say? Oh, okay, yeah, I guess I am just. Right? God does not bow down to a law, but rather the laws are merely descriptions of who he is. So justice is who God is essentially, as uh, justice is not who we are essentially. And so the consequence of this is because justice is essential to God, what this means is that God must deal with sin. God's decision to punish sin is not so much like flip a coin, do I want to punish sin or do I not? You see, because we can be just or unjust, we are able to either rightly deal with sin or wrongly deal with sin. But because God is justice itself, he can't not be just, it is impossible for God to not adequately and properly deal with sin. It is impossible for him to be unjust. He is by definition justice itself. And so this is why we talk about a God in evangelical life. We talk about a God who cannot just wink at sin. He can't just let it go. He can't just sweep it under the rug. He can't just shrug it off and forget about it. That's contrary to his very nature. God shrugging off sin is like asking a fish to fly. It just, it can't, that's not what it does. It can't, it can't work that way. So that justice is essential to God means that God must deal with sin rightly and perfectly. He doesn't even have the option to just be unjust and just forget about this sin. And so how do we know that God is just? We've kind of talked about what justice is. How do we know that God is just? Well, there's five ways that we know God is just. And the first way is through nature. God has written the concept of justice as well as his own justice into nature. So in other words, we experience justice and the justice of God long before we experience religion, long before we even encounter a Bible because it's just written into nature. There are two primary texts that expose this. Romans 1, 
For the wrath of, wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. That ends verse 20. I want to stop there. So notice this word excuse. This is legal language. Right? This is the language of standing before a court and having a good excuse for your actions. So clearly, Romans 1, 18 through 20, is talking about how naturally, apart from special revelation, apart from the Bible, People know that they are in sin. People know that God is their creator and that they are rebelling against him and that they have no excuses before him. So there's just a natural concept of sin and justice that we all have before God. And this is why unbelievers carry a guilty conscience around with them. And we're going to get to that in Romans 2. But he, he, it gets even stronger. He ends the chapter by saying, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give hearty approval to those who practice them. So notice here, people have a natural knowledge that the way I'm living is sinful and that I deserve punishment. That's called justice. And Romans 1 is saying that we perceive all of this justice in the things that have been made. So God is just. You don't need a Bible to know that. You just have to exist in the world, and God is going to make sure you know that. You are not just. God, you don't need a Bible to know that. You're just going to know that. Every person knows, I am not just. God is just. Everyone knows that. By the way, some of the ways that we see this is isn't it amazing how in almost every pagan religion in the world, they have always, for the whole history of paganism, practiced the, had the practice of sacrifices. What is a sacrifice? When we sacrifice to a deity, what are we doing? We are trying to appease its justice. So even the pagans have always had this natural concept of uh, we messed up. And God doesn't mess up, and he's angry with us, so let's kill a virgin. Let's slaughter our children. Let's give him the first grains of the fruit. Let's offer him a bowl or whatever. This is why pagan religions always have sacrifices, because even in their own pagan religions, they can't escape this. They can't escape this idea that their God is good, we are not, and we deserve bad things to happen to us, and so let's try to make him happy so we don't get what we deserve, right? The, the concept of appeasement is related to justice, and every pagan religion has some kind of concept of appeasement. Uh, and we also see this in people's consciences, which Romans 2 talks about. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So here Paul is talking about why is it that when we study every civilization on the face of the earth, even non-Christian ones have this like basic code of morality that we almost all kind of agree on. Like obviously there's a lot of differences on the outskirts, but generally speaking, people have always known that stealing is wrong. I, I've, I've mentioned it once before, but I remember I think it was C.S. Lewis who talked about in a book about observing elementary school students and how uh, there's elementary school, they were all waiting in line for milk at lunch. And this one kid came in late and he jumped way to the front and got right in the front. And all the kids in the back said, that's not fair. 
And he said, what they're doing right now is ethics. Yet none of these elementary school kids have ever sat through a college class on the theory of ethics. None of them have ever read Plato. None of them have ever read Socrates. Where do they get this concept of justice from? How did that little kindergartner know that's not fair? That's because there is a level of justice and law and retribution that's just built into who we are. And this is why even non-religious people will feel guilty when they do wrong things and their conscience nags at them and their thoughts, right? So we have in nature, both within our own selves and within the rest of creation, a concept of good, bad, sin, and sin deserves punishment from a God who does not sin. That's a basic foundation to every religion and it's inescapable. So they go back, but no, go back to that last one. But give approval to those who practice yeah. So if I feel if I feel like what I'm doing is wrong, and and I but I approve of everybody else. So if if that's that's how we get all this acceptance of homosexuality. Yeah, that's right. That's that's a, that's. Because I feel guilty because I cheated on something or or whatever, and so I'm certainly not going to condemn them for something that's obviously worse because maybe. I'll feel better, or that, they won't condemn me. Whoever it is that's making me feel guilty won't condemn me. That's exactly, that is a key observation. This last part, what, what this practice right here is, is it's to, it's to cauterize my conscience. Yes. That's, and that's, that's why peer pressure exists. Because you don't even have to condemn someone with your words. By simply refusing to participate with them, you, you, you stir the waters of their conscience. I, I'll never forget when I first started to experience this when I was early in high school. And I shouldn't have even been there, but I was trying too hard to like ride the, I'm still going to hang out with my friends, but I won't do all the bad stuff that they do line. So I would go to parties. I wouldn't participate in all the bad stuff, but I wanted to be with my friends. So I would go to these parties and people are always trying to get me to smoke pot or they're always trying to get me to drink. And I would say no. And I wouldn't say like that's sinful. The wrath of God abides upon you. I just say no thanks. And it would make them so mad. And I used to think as like a young high school kid, like, why do they care? I'm not stopping them. Like, they can drink and smoke and have as much fun as they want. And I'm not trying to get in their way. But I realized that my very presence, by merely being there and saying, I will not participate in that, it made them feel guilty. And so that's why they they approve those who practice these same things. Because the more people I can get doing the things that make me feel guilty, the less guilty I'll feel. Everyone does it. It can't be wrong. We all do it, right? So that, that's a key observation. The, the reason they do this is because of all of this. Because they feel the weight of God's justice on them and they want to get rid of that weight. And the easiest way to do that is just to, well, everyone's doing it. Everybody does it, right? That's, that, that's exactly right. You know, what you said about nature, throughout history, all the philosophers just about have struggled with virtue. What's ironic, they know there's virtue. That's exactly right. Yeah. Their only struggle is what is virtue? That's right. That's right. They all knew that there's certain things that were made. Exactly. Exactly. Yep, that's exactly right. I had a conversation last week with my sister-in-law, who was, uh, she watches all the PBS stuff. But she, she watched something about Benjamin Franklin. And now he had slaves, and now he was in Philadelphia. He rotated his slaves back to Virginia every six months 
because if they stayed in Philadelphia more than six months, they would be automatically free. Mm -hmm. And she was repeating stuff she'd heard on PBS, trying to make our founding fathers look like scoundrels. Right. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to say to her, well, so what's wrong with slaves? Exactly. Where do you get the idea there's something wrong with slavery? Exactly. There's slaves around for ever since there's been different groups. Exactly. That's exactly right. But, but now we know it's wrong because it's in our hearts. Exactly. That's right. And that, and that's because God has revealed it. Yeah. But once you take God out of the, once you remove God, you and can't you can't justify that. And so this, and, and this goes back when we did our class on the, we talked about the transcendental argument for God's existence. Oh, yeah. And we talked about how God is the foundation. Once you take God out, you, you don't have logic, you don't have thought, you don't have, and one of the things you don't have is you don't have ethics. Once you remove God from the picture, then what's the problem with enslaving someone, right? Like this, I, dogs are slaves, and people are no different than dogs. It's just a different evolutionary. But we're all just accidental biological machines with no free will. Why, why, can't, why can I have a dog at home who has to obey me, and I put a shock collar on him, and, but why not have a black person at home, and he has to obey me, and I put a shock collar on him? And There's no, there's no problem. Without God, there's just no problem with that. Uh, and even if you say, well, morality is determined by society, well, guess what? Ben Franklin's society determined that slavery was okay. So he's still not an evil man. He was just doing what his society determined was okay, right? There's no getting away. Without God, you just simply don't have ethics. And this is why, even like back to Bill's point, this is why Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, these men were not Christians, but they certainly weren't atheists. They were theists because they, they understood to some degree there, there, are, there are things that we know exist that we can't have without, without this, <laughs> right? Um, right, exactly. Yep. And they knew if they got rid of that higher power, they would lose all the foundation to do the very thing that they loved doing, which was philosophy and wisdom. There's no such thing as wisdom without God. There's no such thing as ethics. You just can't make sense of this stuff in the atheist world. So we know that God is just because it's just written in nature. In other words, just let me be really clear about this. How do you know that God is just? You just do. He's just, he, that's, he's just programmed you like that. He's just programmed the world like that. Everyone just does know that he is just and we deserve his justice. You, you just do. You know it. But obviously that's not where God left it. Uh, he, he's revealed his justice in scripture. Now certainly I could literally quote hundreds and hundreds of Bible verses. I'm not going to do that. Just one. Exodus 34, 7. Speaking of God, he is the one that is always good in forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Here is basically a testimony to God's justice. Now notice, he's able to forgive iniquity. So this is not saying that God doesn't ever forgive, but it's saying that for those who are not forgiven, he will not pass over them. If you don't find forgiveness, God will not clear you. God, no one slips through the crack. No one gets through the justice of God. You're either going to be justly forgiven or justly condemned. But those are the only two options. He will either forgive you or he will judge you. But no one is just going to get a middle road where they don't find forgiveness in Christ, but God's going to let them off the hook anyway. Or maybe on Judgment Day, there'll be a really big crowd and someone can sneak past the guards and get into heaven, right? To use a silly, right? No, God is going to punish sin because he is just. He by no means clears the guilty. 
So God's justice is written to nature. It's revealed in Scripture. Uh, God's justice is actually demonstrated in the gospel. Uh, it's really common for people who don't understand Christianity to think the gospel is God um, forfeiting justice. But the beauty of the gospel is that God found a way to forgive sin without offending his justice. We see this in Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So apart from us doing good works, God has found some other way to make his righteousness. Or remember we said that this is basically the same concept of justice. That the justice of God has been revealed outside of us earning salvation. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Let's stop there. So here we already have the gospel being set forth, not as God uh, pausing his justice, but as God satisfying his justice. That's what propitiation means. Propitiation is just a fancy word for appeasement. Propitiation means to turn away wrath. So God's justice, his wrath, abides upon you, Romans 1. But in Christ, through faith in Christ, that wrath is appeased. It's satisfied. And notice, how is it satisfied? Blood. Payment. This is, you, do you see the judicial language here? That God has found a way to pay for your sins so that his justice can be satisfied. So the gospel is not God giving you mercy instead of justice. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is God giving you justice. But it's a justice that Christ earned for you. But it's still just to be received by faith. And then we continue. This was to show God's righteousness. So the gospel is not trying to hide God's justice. It's trying to further display it. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. What is he saying here? Basically, what Paul's saying here is when, when Jesus Christ died for sins, it proved to us that before Christ came, God was not being easy on sin. Right? Like, for, for thousands of years, sinners were sinning, and God had not just come down and sent everybody to hell yet. So for thousands of years, God looked unjust because the world was going and sin was happening and God wasn't doing anything about it. He was passing over former sins. He was apparently ignoring them. But when the gospel came, it revealed, it showed something to us. Oh, God had a plan for this, right? He's got a judgment day. He's got Christ. And so we see that God was not, when he was passing over those sins, he wasn't winking at them or forgetting them. He had a plan in store. So the gospel showed that God was not being unjust in the Old Testament. He's revealed that his justice is not going to be offended. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Isn't this amazing? The gospel is that you can become justified. You are, you, God justifies you. He is the justifier of you. But at no point in time when God justifies you is his justice sacrificed. Rather, he remains just while he justifies you. And, and look at all of these words. Uh, manifested. Show. 
Uh, there was another one, show. So you see how the gospel is putting God's justice on display. It's not hiding his justice. It's not offending his justice. It's doing the exact opposite. It's saying, look at how just God is. He has found a way to forgive sinners and not forego justice at the same time. And why? Because where's the justice? It's right here. There's the justice. It's right there, the satisfaction that was due. So the justice of God is demonstrated in the gospel. And this is what I love about this. You know, you have all of these other religions like liberalism and, and Islam where God doesn't offer a payment. Like it's just if your good works outweigh your bad works, you get into heaven. But that's not justice, right? And we've talked about this. If, if let's say today on my way home, a school bus were to tip over and catch on fire and I pulled 10 kids out. I saved all the kids. And then everyone's like, oh, you're a hero. And then the next day, I go to, five, or I go to Blake's, and they, uh, they get my order wrong, and so I pull out a gun, and I kill the guy behind the counter. And then I get arrested and go to court. What would you think of the judge who said, you know what, he, he murdered this guy in cold blood, but guess what? The day before, he saved 10 people. So he's actually at plus nine right now. We should reward him. That, right? That's not how justice works. We have all these religions where they just want God to like put you on a scale and if you're a little bit better. But that's a religion where the gospel is actually a sacrifice of God's justice. He's ignoring former sins. He's winking at sins. He's just, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. You did other good stuff. I'll let you in. But our God is perfectly just and so he can't do that. No sin will be left unpunished at the end of eternity. Every sin will either be punished in Christ or by the sinner. But every single sin that's ever been committed will be accounted for. And the gospel shows us how God is perfectly just, that he can forgive sin in a just way, not forgiving sin in an unjust way. Uh, God's justice is demonstrated in the law. So you read through the Old Testament. Uh, clearly God has justice in the fact that he gave a law and he punishes things differently, right? We have that famous verse, an eye for an eye. Because you see, true justice is not just punishing sin and rewarding good. It's appropriately punishing sin and appropriately rewarding good, right? If someone steals a candy bar from a grocery store and we cut both their hands off, that's not justice. Sure, someone was punished for doing something wrong, but that punishment does not fit the crime. It goes way beyond. That's way excessive. And so when you look at God's law, you see that not, not only does God punish sin, but he's not overly excessive. There were some sins in the Old Testament that were so serious, God punished them with death. But he didn't just punish all sin with death. He didn't just say, anything you do wrong, kill the person. So God shows in the law that he has this acute and important sense of justice. And then the easy one, God's justice is demonstrated in Judgment Day. God is called the judge, and on Judgment Day, everyone's going to give an account. He's going to re render rewards and, and, and punishments. So clearly, God is revealed as just by being the judge of the earth, the one who is going to judge us on Judgment Day. Right? So these are the five ways in which God's justice is made known to us. We know that God is a just judge because of nature, scripture, the gospel, the law, and judgment. Uh, just to give a couple examples of these. So this is uh, Judgment Day. 
He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Again, this is a huge portion of justice. This is why our symbol in American politics of justice, who knows, what is our symbol of justice that is outside of courtrooms? Lady Justice Justice with the weights. And what's interesting about Lady Justice? She's holding a scale. She's blindfold. And what is that trying to indicate? It's not trying to indicate that she's totally blind, like she can't see evidence. <laughs> right. It shows that she shows no partiality. Because, because she's holding, she, she can't cheat. Right, exactly. That's, 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 yeah, that's right. That's part of it. She, she can't cheat the scale. And exactly. And so that's why, because she's blind, she can't show partiality. She can't say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tip the scales for the rich people. I'm going to tip the scales for the poor people. I'm going to tip the scales for the white people. She's blind, so she just has to judge everyone accordingly. And so we see that God will render each one according to his works. So his, his judgments are going to be good and just, both in punishment and in reward. And that there's going to be no partiality. He's not going to pick favorites on judgment day. It's going to be perfectly pure, perfectly just. So what are some of the applications? We like to end with these. What does God's justice mean for our life? I have, I think, five. Uh, the first one, this is a common one with all of God's attributes, but we should have a lot of hope. We live in a fallen world where, th- where things go unpunished every single day. And it's really discouraging. Like, people getting away with stuff is just so terrible. I'll, I'll never forget, and this isn't even that bad of a thing compared to what happens in our world, but not, not long ago, someone broke into my car, and you know what? They didn't even take anything I really wanted. They honestly, I, I don't leave stuff valuable in my car. They didn't even really take anything that I wanted. But it was just the fact that they got away with it that made me so mad. Like, it just makes me mad that there's someone out there in Roswell right now who's been breaking into cars and hasn't been caught. Like, that makes me so angry. But I have a hope of knowing that if this person never gets caught, God will catch him. Or he's going to come to Christ and all that theft is going to be dealt with in the blood of Jesus Christ. But I know that all of those car thefts will be dealt with. And, and we can say that about even the worst things. I mean, I was just reading, you know, there's, you've heard the story of Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine, Ma- Ghislaine Maxwell. Ghislaine, she, Ghislaine Maxwell, however you say her name, she's in prison right now. And we know that she has a list of hundreds of people that have paid money to rape little girls. And not a single person has been arrested. Not a single person from that list has even been exposed to the public to be shamed. There are people who will have paid money to rape little girls, and then they're going to die one day, and human justice will never find them. An atheist, that's, that's terrifying to think that people are going to get away with that. We can know they're not going to get away with that. Nobody can outrun God. My last example, I know you get the point, but I just love this. One time, uh, this pastor, it was during that same, I brought it up before, that debate film he made with Christopher Hitchens. He talked about how he was in the apartment one morning before one of their debates, and, or in a hotel. And the hotel next to him, the alarm clock went off and it woke him up and it was really annoying because it was someone else's alarm clock and they wouldn't turn it off. 
And the alarm was John Lennon's Imagine. So he said, I, I had to sit there and listen to John Lennon's Imagine on repeat for about an hour. And he said, I started thinking about those lyrics. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. Imagine there's no hell below us. And I forget the rhyme. And he said, let's do that. Oh, oh, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. Imagine there's no hell below us. It's only sky. Something like that. So he said, so let's do that. Above you and me right now, only sky. I, above Blake's right now, only sky. Above Auschwitz, only sky. Above every horrible atrocity that's ever been committed, only sky. And then he asked the question, do you not think that life would have been better for a good many millions of people if Adolf Hitler actually believed that justice was coming for him when he died? Right? Isn't it hopeful to know that God can't be outrun? The human courts can be outrun, but God can't be. And the same thing even with our righteousness. Like, it's encouraging to know that you do so many good things behind the scenes and nobody sees. But one day God, will, God does see and he's going to make it known one day. Like you're going to get your reward for everything. So there's just so much hope in a just God. Those are the crowns we throw at <laughs> That's right though. Yeah, that's right. We don't want it. That's right. Uh, another obvious application is just to be righteous, right? God is... Paul says that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for our lives. Um, God takes sin seriously. He takes justice seriously. And so that should be a motivation for us to not do unjust things, to not sin. So that's a simple one, but an important one. Um, another one is that we should pursue justice. Because God is just, that means we should care about justice. We should care whether our society is a just society or not. We should care about justice happening in our own lives. And, you know, this is hard to do. Sometimes, you know, for example, um, you know, people have come to me on different occasions and they've got like a court case. And I have to be very honest with them. I'm, I'm not praying that you win because the ultimate goal is not you winning. The ultimate goal is that justice will be served. That's what I want to happen in every court case is justice. So even if that means you come out on the losing side of it, then it's a good thing because justice is more important than you, right? So I, I'm not praying for you to win unless you're right. <laughs> then I want you to win. We should care about justice. And this is also why Christians should be active in their communities. There are some Christians who think like we should just focus on the church. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. Christ is coming soon. Just, you know, just forget the world and just don't get involved. Like he's, the old expression is don't polish the brass on a sinking ship, right? God... God's going to burn it all anyway. He's going to come and judge it all anyway. He's probably coming soon, so why try to fix things? Now, I don't believe he's coming soon, and I don't, I don't believe any of that, but if nothing else, even if I believed Christ was coming three days from now, justice is so important and valuable that I would still seek justice in my society for the next three days. Like, we seek justice for justice's sake. It's a good in and of itself. We should want to live in a just society because justice is good. Because God is just, exactly. God is just, so justice is good, so we should seek justice, no matter how much time we have left, right? Justice is good. So we should be people who value justice. And this requires us to not be partial, right? Sometimes justice requires us rebuking our own team, 
It requires us rebuking conservatives. It requires us rebuking Christians. It requires us to admit when we're wrong. It requires us to tell the bad guys, you know what? Yeah, you're actually right. We, like Lady Justice, need to be blind. We need to be impartial, and that's hard to do. So we need to value justice in order to do those things. Another one is we need to affirm hell. Hell is the most difficult doctrine for almost any Christian to believe, but hell is the natural outproduct of a just God. Uh, all uh, modern attempts to make hell a metaphor or to say hell exists but it's going to be empty or that it doesn't really exist are actually just attempts to say God is really not just. He doesn't, he doesn't actually punish sin, right? And so it's, it's actually a big deal to do away with hell because you're, you're now doing away with the justice of God, right? So hell is important. Romans, therefore we don't want to judge them. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. No, no, that's a great comment, yeah. Um, so that, 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 that's an important, I, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not pretending any of these things are easy. So I'm not trying to be flippant, you know, for time's sake, we go through them fast. I know these things are hard, but these are real and important applications of the justice of God. Now, this last one is really important, so we're going to spend some, but I promise we won't go too long, but I want to, I have some verses, because this one's really important. Uh, confess substitutionary atonement. Here's what I mean by this. Um, this is basically tying us back to what we were talking about, about the gospel. So substitutionary atonement is what re the Reformed, and, and more broadly Protestants in general, believe about what the point of the cross was. Like if someone were to ask you, why did Jesus die on a cross? Like what was he doing up there? What was he trying to accomplish? What would be your answer? What would you say? Why did Jesus die? Yeah, to pay for my sin. Th what you basically just said is the layman's version of substitutionary atonement. Jesus was, was offering a payment, a legal payment. Uh, in other words, he was atoning for sins that he didn't commit. So he was substituting himself on behalf of others to make an atonement or an appeasement. So this is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Now, the reason I say this is because, believe it or not, this is only the doctrine of the Protestant world. There are lots of people who call themselves Christians who deny this doctrine. Roman Catholics deny this. The Eastern Orthodox deny this. Liberal Christians deny this. And you have all these other what are called atonement theories, and they say that Jesus was not paying for sins but he was doing something else. There's, there's probably 10 total different atonement theories of what Jesus was actually trying to accomplish on the cross. And this is specifically what the Reformation came to affirm, was that Christ died to pay a legal spiritual debt. And for example, the reason you have people deny this is um, Roman Catholics kind of need to deny it because it sort of goes against their entire sacrificial system. Their entire system of sacraments is obliterated when you say, I have a once-for-all sacrifice that just wipes all my sins clean. Because now I don't need to go to a priest and be forgiven of my sins this week. They were forgiven 2,000 years ago. So Roman Catholics deny this. It's also sometimes referred as penal substitution. Uh, that idea that Christ died as a substitution for a penalty. It's the same thing. Penal substitution, substitutionary atonement. Liberals deny it because they say things like, uh, substitutionary atonement makes God just like the pagan gods, right? Because the pagan gods get mad at people, and what do they have to do? They have to sacrifice a virgin. 
They have to, they have to sacrifice a child. And so in, in the Protestant world, they think God is a pagan God who, who commits child sacrifice. God sacrifices his own son, his virgin son. So this is basically the doctrine where God sacrifices a virgin child to appease his anger. And they'll say things like, that makes him an evil, angry, pagan deity. But we believe in the loving God who can just forgive your sins and doesn't need a sacrifice. God can just forgive you the way you forgive your children without making them kill somebody else. Right, that's what they say. Yeah, and that's why they don't discipline their children. <laughs> exactly, that's why they don't spank their children. That's right. So, um, but we would argue not just that substitutionary atonement is explicitly taught in Scripture, which we're going to show, and I'm showed some, uh, we would be here all night if we went through the whole Bible. But I'm going to show that this is just the biblical doctrine. There's no getting around it. But what I want us to see here is that it is tied to the justice of God. Part of why we affirm this is not just because of the Bible teaches it, but also because the Bible teaches that God is just. And to forgive us without a proper satisfaction is not justice. To merely wink at our sin and say, hey, I love you guys, you're cool. That, that sounds good to the sinner. That sounds pleasant to us who are not getting what we deserve. But on a cosmic level, that's not a good thing. That's an unjust God. We don't want a gospel that sacrifices God's justice. And so we believe that God's gospel is consistent with his justice so that our sins are actually paid for. They're actually dealt with so that we don't have to pay for them ourselves. So let's just look at a handful of those. We already saw it in Romans 3. I won't go over this, but again, Christ is described as a redemption. That means to buy something back. That's what it means to redeem something, to repurchase it. So Christ legally purchases us through a propitiation, the satisfying of wrath by blood. So the liberals can try to turn this into paganism all they want, but it's just right here in the Bible. The blood of Christ appeases God's wrath. It's just right there. There's just no getting around it. This is substitutionary language. Uh, Galatians 2, Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul's point here is that if the way I get to heaven is by earning it, then why did Jesus die on a cross? I, I didn't need Jesus to die. I just needed to be perfect, and then God saves me. So what's the implication here? The implication is not just that we can't earn salvation, but the implication is then, okay, why did Christ die? so that I could be righteous, right? If righteousness were through the law, so it's not through the law, so then where, how do I get righteousness? Christ died. So here Paul is explicitly affirming that the purpose of Christ's death was to make us righteous. If he doesn't die, you're a sinner. But because he does die, you are righteous. That's a legal payment. That's atoning for sins. Colossians 2, this might be the most explicit. And you who are dead in your, in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. This is purely legal courtroom language. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is powerful. This is basically saying we walk into God's courtroom and we say, you gave me a ticket. You gave me a ticket and it's got a big list of all my sins and it says the, the penalty is eternal death. 
And God says, yep, and you're going to pay it. And then Christ comes in and slams his blood on the table and says, I'll pay it for him. That's what this is saying, right? So this is very, very clear that the crucifixion was a legal, spiritual satisfaction and payment for our sins. Just two more. Peter says, speaking of Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. That's pretty explicit language. Because Christ was punished, you are healed. That's substitutionary atonement. And even here, your sins were inside of Christ, metaphorically speaking. He took your sins, he put them on himself, and then he nailed those sins to the cross. And the last one we're going to look at, this is actually not Peter's language. Peter, being the good theologian that he is, is actually quoting from the Old Testament here. This comes from the prophecy of the suffering Messiah. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So there's the substitution. Christ takes on our sins on our behalf. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. How strong is that language? Jesus died because God willed it. It was God's choice to crush Jesus. He has put him to grief. God crushes Jesus. God puts him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge the righteous one, my servant, make, I think it's supposed to say will though, will make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. It just doesn't get more explicit than this. The only reason someone would deny this is because they have an outside system, they have outside theology they're trying to preserve, and so they have to deny and twist these clear passages of Scripture because they just don't like the doctrine of penal substitution. But it's, it's just there. And so the justice of God, again, forces us to confirm that the gospel is an act of justice. It is an act of mercy, it is an act of grace, but it is also an act of justice. Christ died because sin had to be paid for. So those are my five applications. We've gone long, but I, if you have time, I still want to hear from you. I just want to show one awesome verse in conclusion. From Genesis 18, 1825. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous are fair as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? This is all of our hope for eternity wrapped in a single sentence. I, I, I quote this every time I think about my family members that don't know Christ, Layla's family members, and it's, it's just too much for me to bear to think of them perishing eternally. I just can't bear that thought. And when I'm overwhelmed with fear and guilt and depression, I just think of this. Whatever happens, I know that it's justice. Like no one's going to get more than they deserve. What that looks like, I don't know. How that plays out, I, I don't know. I don't need to know. But I can at least know that it's not going to be this eternal act of excessive punishment. It's whatever happens at the end of eternity, the judge of all the earth will do what is right. Because, why? Because he is essentially just. 